0: Good morning, Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today and to have this opportunity to open God's word with you. I want to invite you to join me again in a brief word of prayer before we look at the word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would grant us grace to trust you more through this time. Heavenly Father, pour out your grace on us to give us hearts to hear, eyes to see. We might look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and see in him your glory revealed to mankind and that we would cast ourselves fully upon him as the savior of mankind and as our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 28 and 29. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it in a few moments, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to be looking often at the passage uh, this morning. I've always been very interested in my own genealogy, my own family history. Uh, Not interested enough at this point to take action and to start actually tracing my family history and learning about the people who went before me, but I I assume that's something I'll do at some point. Uh, And I'm guessing that most of us, if we had the opportunity, would love to sit down with a book full of stories from each of our own family's history and I'm sure if we did we'd find find all sorts of interesting things we'd probably find stories of chance meetings that changed lives we might learn of stories of contraptions being invented that changed the world or heroic deeds being done by people who've gone before us in our family at the same time I'm also sure that at some point in each of our family histories, we'd encounter genuinely evil acts, the type of acts that make us close the book or avoid bringing attention to that specific person that we are descended from. I bring that up because Genesis, the book of Genesis, is a Family history of sorts. It's a family history of the entire human race, yes, but more specifically, it's a, human, a family history of the nation of Israel. It's a story of how they came to be and who they came to be through. It's a story of the forefathers of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of how God was using them to bring about the redemption of the world. And just as every family history surely has dark chapters in it, so Israel's family history had dark chapters. And at this point in Israel's history, Genesis 34 is the darkest chapter of all. It's a chapter entirely devoid of God, and at first glance, devoid of any redemptive value. But that's only at first glance. Uh, In the end, we'll learn a very important lesson that I hope we all lean into today. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us now. Uh, This is God's Word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, give me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city, and in the field, all their wealth all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is a dark chapter indeed, but I do believe that there is a surprising lesson in it for us. If you're taking notes, I think that surprising lesson that Genesis 34 teaches us is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And with the time remaining, what I'm gonna do is walk us through the text, explaining it as I go, then we'll consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel, and then we'll spend some time considering that God's grace is greater than our sin and what that means for how we should live in the week to come. So let's t- uh, go ahead and take a look at the text together. The first thing I want you to do is look with me at Genesis 33, verse 18. At the end of that chapter, it reads, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Uh, that verse is far more significant than it sounds because it constituted the fulfillment of God's promises to Jacob that had been 20 years in the making. 20 years earlier, while Jacob was on the run for his life, God promised Jacob that he would protect him and bless him and ultimately bring him back to the land of Canaan, which he promised to give him. And now, 20 years later, that promise had come true. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which was in the land of Canaan, and took up residence in it. One would think that now that he had finally come to live in the land that God had promised him, that everything would be smooth sailing from here on out, but unfortunately, that's not the case. We find this next chapter in Jacob's life is exceedingly dark. Go ahead and look with me at verses one to four now of chapter 34. We see there that Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters, goes out to see the women of the land, and as she's going, Shechem, the prince of the land, saw her seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. This is what we would describe today as sexual assault or rape. Yet we also read of the puzzling aftermath in which Shechem falls in love with Dinah and tells his father that he wants to marry her. We don't need to linger long on this account to grasp the wickedness of it but I do want you to notice the very intentional wording that Moses uses. Look again at verse two. Look at what Shechem does. First, Shechem saw her, then he seized her or took her, then he sinned against her. Same wording, same trajectory is used of Eve's sin in the garden. She saw the fruit, she seized the fruit, or took the fruit, then she ate the fruit and sinned. We see the same pattern multiple times in Genesis, referring to sins that people commit. I think Moses wants us to see a connection between this account and Genesis uh, 3, where Eve sins. He wants us to see The effects of that first sin working themselves out here. The world is still under the curse of sin. And in a world under the curse of sin, terrible things happen. Things like what happened to Dinah here. And unfortunately, things get even worse. Look at verse 5 and following. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. He just hit pause right there. You, you would expect at this point that when a father hears about his daughter being raped, that he would be livid, to say the least. That he would spring into action to defend his daughter's honor. That he would go and bring justice, a, a justice in right measure to this man who did that. But that's not what Jacob does at all. Look at verse 5 again. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. He didn't do anything. And lest we think it's because he was wisely restraining himself from doing something foolish in anger, we're going to see that he never does anything, never says anything, never confronts the man who did this to Dinah. Look in verse 6. Hamor, Shechem's father, comes to Jacob to discuss Shechem's marriage to Dinah, and that conversation continues from verse 8 all the way to verse 24. And not once, not once does Jacob say anything to them about what Shechem did. He does nothing to defend his daughter. And I think that's why you go ahead and look back at verse one of chapter 34 that Moses introduces Dinah as the daughter of Leah. We learned in earlier chapters that Jacob did not love Leah Jacob hated Leah. He loved his wife Rachel more than Leah, and he loved his son Joseph, who came from Rachel, more than his children through Leah, Dinah included. Jacob's sinful favoritism has manifested itself in a calloused, hard-heartedness towards the well-being of his very own daughter. Now he's shown up by his sons, who in verse 7 hear about what's happened to Dinah and immediately come home from shepherding the flock. They are rightly indignant and very angry at what had happened, but lest we think her brothers will be the heroes we need, we're going to see that their anger quickly metastasizes into bloodthirsty revenge. This dark chapter is only going to continue getting darker and darker. And we see that clearly in the rest of the chapter. In verses 8 to 12, Hamor and Shechem come to negotiate the marriage of Shechem and Dinah. They tell Jacob and his sons to basically become one people with them, right? We'll marry your daughters. You can marry our daughters. Not only that, there will be financial incentives too. You can live in the land and you can trade here and you'll become prosperous. I think that's all that's uh, implied here. And we see in verse 12 how lucrative this could have been for Jacob and his sons because Shechem, the prince of the land, basically says, name your price. I'll give you whatever you want for Dinah. But what I want you to also notice is is what Hamor and Shechem never say. They never say sorry. They never apologize. Shechem never pleaded for Jacob to forgive. There's no indication whatsoever that they even think they've done anything wrong. Hamor and Shechem are as hard-hearted as Jacob is. They think it's just okay for them to take women whenever they want, to seize them, to lay with them, and to humiliate them according to their good pleasure. And then Jacob's sons respond to their offer and things go from bad to worse. After reading that Jacob's sons were angry about what happened to their sister, you know, we're left hoping that maybe they're gonna bring some light to this dark chapter, but Moses wants us to know that they are not the heroes we are looking for. Look at verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. Like father, like sons. Jacob, the deceiver, has raised sons who are deceivers. And the offer they're about to make is a large-scale, deceptive plot to exact revenge on Shechem for what he's done. They tell Hamor and Shechem that they can't give their sister to, uh, to, to someone who is uncircumcised. Just got to understand a bit of the backstory of what's going on there. Back in Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham, Jacob, and his sons, the forefather of Jacob and his sons. And he made a covenant with Abraham that he would be Abraham's God, and Abraham and his offspring would be his people. And the sign of that covenant to show that you were participating in that covenant was Circumcision. Abraham and all of his male offspring, children and grandchildren throughout the generations, were circumcised to show that the God of Israel was their God and they were his people. And so it marked off the nation of Israel from the surrounding nations, like the nations of Canaan. And it also served as an outward symbol of what was supposed to be an inward reality. The inward reality of devotion to and trust in God and his promises. But it doesn't seem that that inward reality has taken effect in Jacob's son's lives. Nor are Jacob's sons concerned about the inward reality being true for Hamor and Shechem and the men of the city. They don't care about the people of Shechem coming to know the one true and living God. They're just Caring about carrying out this plot against them so that they can get revenge. They simply lie to them and tell them, listen, we can't give our sister to someone who's uncircumcised, technically true. So here's what we'll do if you and all your men get circumcised, then we'll give our daughters to you and take your daughters as our wives and we'll become one people. Amor and Shechem were like, bet, done deal. So they go to the city, of the, uh, the city gate to tell the men of Shechem about the deal they've just struck. I want you to look at what they say in verse 21 and following. Note this carefully. Look at what they say in verse 21. These men are at peace with us. Oh, no, they aren't, and that will become clear very soon. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Now, notice what they say Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Notice what's going on here. Either Hamor and Shechem are lying to their own people to get them to go through with circumcision by making the deal sound better than it is. All their stuff is gonna become ours. Or they lie to Jacob and his sons by hiding their true intentions. Which is that, yeah, you guys come and marry us, we'll get circumcised, but what we're not telling you is that we are gonna take all your stuff. In either case, they are liars, using this, this moment to get across some political gain for themselves. This chapter is just sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And it gets worse. Verses 25 to 29, Jacob's sons hatch their plot. They wait until the men of the city are incapacitated because of the circumcision. And then Simeon and Levi... Dinah's brothers proceed to kill all the men of the city. They don't just kill Shechem, who was guilty. They kill all the men of the city, men who had nothing to do with what happened to Dinah. And here we see the interconnectedness of sin, don't we? Our sins, friends, don't happen in a vacuum. Our sins have effects on the people around us and may at times cause them to engage in sin. Our sins happen to real people who will at times respond to our sins with sins of their own. Jacob's sin of favoritism and failing to stand up for his daughter has resulted in Simeon and Levi's atrocity. If Jacob had led the way in defending his daughter and pursuing actual Justice, he in all likelihood would have prevented this injustice. But because he didn't, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers through Leah, exact a sinful and terrible revenge on this city. But it's not just Simeon and Levi. Look at verses 27 and 28. All of Jacob's sons jump in. All of of Jacob's sons, plunder and pillage the city. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. A very small number of commentators have said that what Jacob's sons do here is commendable. And that they, they say that they are examples of holy zeal and protecting the purity of God's people. Uh, but I just don't think that's the case at all. Not only is Moses clear that they deceived the men of the city, and, and he wants to see their deception in the line of Jacob's deception, who was also sinning when he deceived the people who went before him. Not only that, their revenge is wildly out of proportion to the sin committed. God is clear later in his law that eye for an eye, in order to protect people from going above and beyond and exacting bloodthirsty revenge on people who have wronged them, a perfect example is this chapter here. Their revenge is wildly out of proportion to the sin committed, and we'll see later in Genesis 49 when Jacob is at the end of his life, and he is pronouncing divine blessings on each of his children he recalls this event and he explicitly condemns Simeon and Levi's actions in their anger they hamstrung oxen in their anger they plundered the city oh keep my soul from ever coming into their council that's what Jacob says about Simeon and Levi what they do here is terrible We just have to remember that the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob included the promise that they would bring blessing to the nations. They would be the ones to declare God's glory before the watching world, and yet we find that the people who were to bring that blessing have instead brought the sword in a bloodthirsty rage and have pillaged and plundered the city. This dark chapter ends on a dark note. Look at verses 30 and 31. Jacob responds in self-interested fear. You have made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. If they gather against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. He's apparently forgotten that God has already promised to be with him and to protect him. He's forgotten that now. Now that there's trouble that you've caused me, I don't know what's gonna happen. These people are gonna attack me and kill me. He's forgotten that God has promised to protect him and he's still completely unconcerned for his daughter and what has happened to her. He only cares about how their actions have affected him, which is why it's not surprising that Simeon and Levi respond the way that they do. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I mean, it's just like, an unbelievable way to end the chapter, but an appropriate way in one sense because of how dark this chapter ends, or how dark this chapter is, that it would end this way. But the sons are basically saying to their dad, "You did nothing. You did not. Do, you didn't do anything to protect her. What are we supposed to do?" Which doesn't at all excuse what they've done, but it's like punching him in the face. Dinah was treated like a prostitute, and you just stood by and did nothing. How this chapter ends. This chapter is sin and darkness through and through. You have Shechem sexually assaulting Dinah. You have Jacob not caring that his own daughter has been raped. You have Shechem and Hamor completely unconcerned about acknowledging the sin that Shechem has committed. You have Jacob's sons walking in his own footsteps, deceiving Hamor and Shechem with their plot. You have Shechem and Hamor hiding their greedy intentions from Jacob. You have Jacob's uh, Jacob's sons bloodthirsty and greedy rage. And you have Jacob's self-interest and fear. I mean, I've been reading this passage and I'm looking for light and there is no light. It's only darkness through and through. So when you take a step back and realize, wait a second. You know who isn't mentioned once in this chapter? God. God doesn't appear at all in this chapter. This is the first chapter in Genesis where God has not appeared even once. So you might be wondering how on earth the main lesson of Genesis 34 is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. but I think ultimately, that was the lesson for the nation of Israel, and still is the lesson for us today. But you see, as the nation of Israel would later learn about their family history and the people who went before them, as they would later read and hear stories about their forefathers, they would have heard of stories of heroic deeds, Like Abraham rescuing Lot or David beating Goliath. They would have heard about victories in battle and the building of temples and the the, the glory of God's presence filling the temple among them, showing that he was their God and they were his people. But subtly, what would have happened is that the belief would have begun to settle into their hearts that there was something in them that was special. There was something in them that made them better than the nations around them, something in them that caused God to choose them over the nations like the nations of Canaan and the Perizzites and Hivites and Hittites and Jebusites. But when they came to Genesis 34, they would have faced the cold, hard fact that apart from God's grace, they were no different than the nations around them. It's not just the Canaanites who sinned by defiling Dinah. But our forefather Jacob sinned. And our forefathers Simeon and Levi sinned. And all the tribes of Israel sinned. We even see the events of this chapter repeat themselves later in Israel's history. The only difference is that it no longer involves Canaanites at all. The entire thing involves Israelites. As David's son, Amnon, rapes his sister, Tamar, and King David, righteous David, does nothing to defend Tamar, leading to Absalom taking revenge on his very own family. Even using the same language from this chapter, that what, they had, what Amnon had done should not be done. That is an outrageous thing that should not occur in Israel. Right? It's not just the nations who are in need of God's grace, but Israel who is in need of God's grace. It's not just the nations who are under the curse of sin, but Israel is under the curse of sin. And the same is true of us, friends. But if we if we walk away today thinking, good golly, Jacob and his sons are messed up. Right? Or those Canaanites terrible people, or thankfully, we have progressed as a people, and we no longer do the barbaric things that they did in Genesis 34. If that's how we walk away from this chapter, then we have missed the point. We have lost the plot. If Genesis 34 teaches us anything, it's that all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of of God, when God comes to extract the cancer of sin from the world, he will not only have to extract sin from the people out there, he's gonna to have to extract it from the hearts of his very own people. And the darkness of this chapter serves to highlight the staggering glory of the gospel, that God would send his beloved son into the world to die for people like Shechem and Hamor, to die for people like Jacob and his sons, and to die for people like you and me. That is the good news of the gospel. Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. None is righteous, No, not one. Now, I recognize, friends, if you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus or a Christian, that might sound offensive to you, and I get that, I get that. You might look at Shechem and at what Jacob's sons do here and think, I have never done anything like this in my life. How dare you compare me to them? And if you haven't done anything like that in your life, I'm glad for that. That's, that's That's a good thing. But according to Scripture, whether or not we've done things like what Shechem has done, or vengefully murdered others, according to scripture, that makes no difference. Because God does not judge us based on our relative holiness to one another, but according to his holy standard, which is perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And according to that standard, friends, all of us has failed. I'm confident that if you took some time to think about your life and to think about the things that you've done in your life and thought in your life, whatever it may be, that it wouldn't be too hard to convince you of that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have lied, lusted, or taken things that aren't ours, or angrily murdered people in our hearts as Jesus taught about anger or dishonored our parents by disobeying them, or by gossiping about others, or sinfully judging others in our hearts, or self-righteously thinking we're better than others, or by fearfully not standing up to others when we ought to. The list of possible ways that you and I have sinned is endless, all of which makes the good news of the gospel all the more unbelievable. That God sent his son into the world to live the perfect life that we should have lived, And to die in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Friends, you might be tempted to think, wait, so is the message of Christianity that what happens in Genesis 34 doesn't really matter because God just forgives and God's love, right? That's only half true. The message of the the gospel and of Christianity is not that the events of Genesis 34 don't matter to God. They matter tremendously to God. They mattered so much to God that he sent his son into the world to bear the judgment for them so that if you and I trust in him, we would no longer have to bear the punishment for our own sins. Sin is so grievous to God, so heinous to God, that his own son died to bear the just wrath against sin. So what happens in Genesis 34 is terrible and God judges it on the cross if they believed in Jesus. And if something like what happens in Genesis 34 has happened to you and your life and you're wondering if God cares about it, if God sees it, if he's gonna do anything about it, the good news for you is that he is. He has appointed a day when Jesus Christ is going to return and he will hold everyone accountable for every sin they have committed. So if anything like that has happened to you, God does care. God will judge sin. But the call for you today is to turn from your own sins and to put your trust in Jesus Christ so that on the day of judgment when God's righteous wrath is revealed, it will not be poured out on you. And that's his promise in the gospel that whoever has sinned and however great their sins may be, That if they would repent of their sins, God would take the biggest bucket you could ever imagine. We went to uh, Great Wolf Lodge. When was it? Earlier this year? It was earlier this year. If you've ever been to Great Wolf Lodge, I think they're all the same. Then you know that they have a a water park indoors, really fun. Uh, I commend it to you wholeheartedly. One of my favorite things and definitely one of my kids' favorite things is the gigantic bucket of water that rests upon the castle that everyone plays on and that bucket fills up with water. I have no idea how many gallons are in this thing. I mean, there must be an Olympic pool of water in this bucket. And it fills up and fills up and fills up and then you start to hear this alarm bell going off which signals to you that the bucket is about to be poured out. And then all the kids bum rush to the area, they stand underneath the bucket and it's just like, go just tons of water. Kids go flying because it's so much water and you're just standing there like this is amazing. That is what God's grace is like in the gospel. He pours that thing out and you get overflowed, knocked down. His grace abounds to you and me in Jesus Christ. We may have sinned, but God's grace is greater than all of our sin. God will lavish his grace on you, and his grace is greater than all of your sins. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, God's grace is to be a transforming grace. I want to direct your attention briefly to chapter 35, where God reappears on the scene and reaffirms his promises to Jacob. And in verse 2, Jacob responds to this display of grace by telling his family to put away their foreign gods that they used to worship and to put on new garments, signifying that a transformation is taking place in their lives. We see the same theme bear out in the New Testament. Those who've experienced God's staggering, forgiving grace are to be transformed in their thinking and living and one particular area that I see in Genesis 34 that we should think about being transformed in is in our romantic relationships. Really? That's, what? Genesis 34, transforming our romantic relationship? What are you talking about, John? How, how does that possibly, here, bear with me. I'm guessing that wasn't an application that you expected from this chapter, but I, I, I think it's there nonetheless, This chapter establishes a theme of sorts, a pattern that appears again and again throughout the rest of scripture. In verses eight to 12, Hamor offers Jacob and his sons the ability to freely marry the women of Canaan and the men of Canaan would marry the women of Israel and together they would become one people. That description, one people, should catch our attention. Because the last time we saw it was when the one people of the world built the Tower of Babel and were judged by God for it. God then called out of that one people, Abraham, to make a new nation of people through him, uh, to make a new nation of people through Abraham who would be distinct from the nations around them. And here, the people of Israel are being tempted to give up that distinction and that relationship with God by intermarrying with the nations around them. Later in scripture, God would forbid the intermarriage of Israelites with the nations, not because of prejudice or racism or anything like that, but because God knew that if his people married with the nations, they would end up turning away from him, which happened over and over again in the Old Testament. That's why in the New Testament, believers are commanded to be transformed in their romantic relationships by not marrying non-Christians, right? What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 6? What does darkness have to do with light? What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? The same pull that existed in the Old Testament on that side of the cross exists in the New Testament on this side of the cross. When a believer marries an unbeliever, as much as we might like to think we can be the means of pulling that person towards God, the opposite usually happens and we get pulled towards unbelief and by walking away from God. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply to a situation in which both spouses are non-Christians and then one becomes a Christian. In that case, you remain married and you honor God and your spouse in the midst of that marriage. But in light of God's grace, our romantic relationships should be brought under his light. And we should seek to obey God as we think about potential spouses. I'm gonna drop that with the teens here. What Maybe in the next 15, 20 years, 30 years if your dad is listening, 40 years, not while I'm living, right? But hey, just think about this in the future. Uh, if you're following Jesus and you're, you're committed to, to walk with him, God's calling you to look for a spouse who's also a believer, uh, not to be equally yoked as Paul would have. Now, now, some of you may not get married and may not want to be married, and that's fine, God gives the gift of singleness to some people. But as we think about our romantic relationships, we want to think about how has God called his people throughout scripture to conduct themselves romantically. God's grace also transforms our spiritual eyes to see the temptations of the world around us. I want you to notice again what Hamor and Shechem offer Jacob and his sons. They say, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. I want you to notice how similar that offer is to the promises God made to Jacob. God promised to give Jacob numerous offspring, the land of Canaan, and material blessing. And here Hamor is offering what appears to be the same thing. Daughters in marriage through whom you'll have children, the land to dwell in, and material blessing. But if Jacob and his sons took what Hamor offered, it actually would have resulted in them losing everything because Hamor and Shechem would have taken it. They also would have forfeited God's blessings. I want all of us to think about this, but especially the teens and younger kids as we think about uh, the world around us. The world is going to try and offer to you what only God can give. The world is going to offer you things that sound strikingly similar, similar to what God offers. The world's going to offer to you its joy. The world's going to offer to you its peace. The world's going to offer to you its pleasure, its riches, its hopes, its dreams. But if you take up what the world is offering, you won't receive any of those things. What the world promises is ultimately an illusion wealth, power. Material goods, sexual pleasure, self-expression, none of these things brings the fulfillment our hearts long for and we were made for. Only God and his promises can give us what we truly desire. And if you take what the world has to offer, you will not only not get what you're chasing, you'll also forfeit the glorious grace and blessings of God. Don't believe the world's lies. Don't take up the world on its promises. They are a pitiful replacement for the true and lasting hope, joy, peace, and pleasure that are found in God alone. As we finish, I know some of you may hear about the way that God's grace is to transform us, and you might see the ways that you've failed this past week where maybe you've bought into the world's lies. Maybe you've given in to temptation. You might hear that God's grace is greater than all our sin and think that it's not greater than your sin, that somehow you have failed one too many times. That's you. I want to point you to the text. Look again at chapter 35. After the darkness and sin of chapter 34, you would think that Jacob and his sons were beyond his grace, but nothing could be further from the truth. God calls Jacob to renewed worship, to put off his sin again and to receive again the promises of God. Hasn't this been what we've seen already in Genesis? God's people fail and God shows them more grace. Abraham failed to protect his wife Sarah twice. Isaac failed to protect his wife Rebecca. Jacob has failed to protect his daughter Dinah. You notice a pattern? And yet the other pattern that we see is that God's mercies are new every day. Every day, friend, that is the reality for you today if you are in Christ. You are never beyond beyond God's grace. No matter how many times you stumble, fail, and sin, God's grace will always be greater than your sin. As we're gonna sing in our final hymn in a bit, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Will you receive it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray that you would help us to believe and live as though your grace is greater than our sin, and transform us by your grace, that we would live in a way that honors you, uh, to your glory and our everlasting good. In Jesus' name, amen.